0: Welcome to the next show. With this show we aim to shift your perspective on digital business and we are doing so by inviting a diverse range of international doers and thinkers to our next stage. In this third episode we focus on global trends relevant for marketing and product development and of course there's one trend that is on everybody's minds right now, the metaverse. So the internet is going 3D and everyone is thinking about what that could possibly mean. But instead of talking about what the metaverse could be, in our show today we take a close look at what experiences we built already in the gaming world. This field has developed over the past 50 years from pixelated dots in a table tennis simulation, known as Pong, to the immersive, interactive, lively worlds um, of video gaming today. My two teenage sons fill me in on everything that is happening in this space on a daily basis mainly because they want to have a new game and a new game and a new game. But it's not only about video games in this space. The game engines are also used in Hollywood and beyond for generating digital sceneries. With these technologies, companies build digital twins of cities, cars or industrial plants or digital fashion items even. So, it's important to understand that these companies have a very profound knowledge um, of what is excitement and community even uh, tomorrow. So, I'm delighted to have you here, Monique, to talk with our guest of today, Deborah Pinnick. Yeah, Deborah Penick of Ubisoft.
1: And, you know, this is the thing once you build a world and there's a persistent digital world you can enter into social things start to happen as well. I mean, uh, Ubisoft has a number of games. It's a huge company, 20,000 people work for it. It's a French company. And um, just as an example, recently they put a commemorative plaque for a very young player that had died. um, And they put a plaque on the exact spot where he had some record in the game so that every gamer afterwards could see that plaque. I mean, there's something about games and interaction that is you know, there's a real community feel to them. Um, and Deborah especially is interesting because Ubisoft builds these worlds, and these worlds are also used in um, you know f- entertainment parks or for VR experiences, or now for movies and documentaries, because the worlds they build are so detailed that they actually become real sets. So there's a lot to learn from that world as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um before we dive into that, I'm really curious what David has to say about this. He is joining us from London today. David.
2: Thanks, Ina. Thanks, Monique. Hi to everyone out there. I have a thought. Uh, it's been on my mind. It's been on all of our minds across the last year or so. Yes, it's about the metaverse, which you're going to hear a lot about this season. You're going to hear a lot about it this year. Right at the beginning of this year, a story caught my eye and that 's that Philip Rosedale, the founder of Second Life, is returning to Second Life he founded Second Life back in 1999 believe it or not believe it or not he left in 2010 and now he 's coming back as an investor and an advisor now why does this matter? if you remember second Life back in the mid 2000s, 2005, 2006, you know that it was a virtual world where people transacted with one another, they hung out with one another, they socialised, there were brands inside Second Life, there were stores there, and that's led people to say these days that Second Life was more than just a video game. It was essentially the world's first really proper metaverse. And in the meantime, since 2005, we kind of forgot a bit about Second Life, really. But now, (laughs) in the last couple of years, the metaverse has become a huge deal. Facebook has changed its name to Meta. Mark Zuckerberg wants to own the future of the metaverse. Snap wants to own the future of the metaverse. The metaverse is the big coming tech trend of this era. And Philip Rosedale says he wants to return to his creation. He wants to return to Second Life to rebuild it and to quest after the future of the metaverse. And he says that he wants to create. A version of the metaverse that Facebook essentially doesn't control and a much better version, he says, because it won't be based on targeted advertising. He says that if Facebook gets to own the future of the metaverse, it's going to be about data driven advertising. And that is a really bad result for you and me and millions of others, for everyone, really. So he wants Second Life to create a new kind of people powered metaverse. And it's just such a really powerful reminder that this quest to control the future or own the future of the metaverse that Meta is involved in, that Snap is involved in, that others are involved in, and now Second Life 2, is really just starting to come to life. And it's gonna shape so much about the digital future and the technological future in the 2020s. So keep your eye on Philip Rosedale, keep your eye on Second Life. Some of you like me are probably old enough to have remembered it from the first time around. Keep your eye on Second Life this year and let's see where it takes us when it comes to the future of the metaverse. Okay, back to you guys in Hamburg.
1: The internet is going 3D this year. I mean, if you call it spatial computing or immersive tech or the metaverse, um, the biggest companies in the world right now are looking at 3D worlds, a permanent worlds that you can be in and interact in. Now, and this is not something new. I mean, in the game world, people have been working on this for 20 years and more. I'm super happy that we have a guest who has been working at the core of this trend for many, many years. And she's called Deborah Papiernik. Deborah, welcome.
3: Hello, Monique.
1: You are the VP of New Business and Strategic Alliances for Ubisoft. and Uh, Ubisoft is a huge, huge company, right? I mean, it's French, you make video games. How many people work at Ubisoft?
3: Oh, uh, close to 20,000. And we're a French company, but we have studios worldwide.
1: Yeah, you have studios all over the world, and more than 16,000, I read, people actually developing the new games, or really working on the games. market cap of 1.8 billion euro, just to show that Europe has big, big, big companies. Um, what are the most famous games? I think a lot of people will know, but I'm asking you.
3: Yeah, our, our turnover is close to 2 billion euro and our ma- market cap is around 7
1: oh. billion, I think. I'll um, update the Wikipedia page afterwards. <laughs>
3: uh, the, um, our biggest brands are Assassin's Creed, yeah. uh, that explores uh, history. Uh, but also Far Cry, the Tom Clancy series, Watch Dogs, The Division, Rainbow Six, which is huge on esports, um, and also brands like Just Dance or The Rabbits. So we have a catalogue that's wide enough to please all the family and we also have games on mobile.
1: And games that have fans, people playing the games for many, many years, right? I mean, this, this it's not like a game comes and goes. It's it, The game itself is almost a permanent world where people come back to all the time.
3: Yeah, it always starts with one game and a game can then turn into a franchise. And Assassin's Creed was born about 15 years ago. The Rabbids as well were born like 12 years ago or so. Just Dance also. so. Um, it's different iterations, where it's not just more of the same, we ex- also explore new gameplays, we make the games evolve, um, and they turn into brands, and brands with which we can also do something else than just games. We're also active in uh, TV and movies and, and all kinds of books and comics, like they really have a huge content that can be declined in other fields of entertainment and more.
1: Because I understand you also, it goes as far as even doing theme parks and I mean the the brand can extend to the real world, so to speak, in many different forms as well, right?
3: Definitely. And both, uh, there are two reasons for that. One is for fans to be able to see their beloved brands in other contexts. For example, if they want to go uh, read a book or see a movie or go to a, do an attraction. But it's also a way for us to present our beautiful brands and world to other people, maybe people who are not players, either because they're not in the right age category, because we have a few games that are mature rated, or just because they don't want to play. And someone maybe doesn't want to play an action-adventure game, but they would still want to be confronted in uh, to the Assassin's Creed universe.
1: Now, now let's talk a little bit about the Assassin's Creed universe, because I don't think everybody realizes that, the universe that that game is played in actually is has a lot of historically correct detail, right? I mean, you study and study and study before you create that space, that, that game world. Can you explain a little bit what you do?
3: Sure. So, um, within the Assassin's Creed, there, there are historians. Uh, so, they dig on a topic uh, to say, okay, Assassin's Creed is a history-based game, so which period of time can we pick that is rich enough? So first of all, it's rather broad in terms of, okay, is the Italian Renaissance interesting enough? Is it a turning point in history? What is in there that's going to help us make um, a, a good game with enough content and, and characters and changes in the economic life and social life and beautiful architecture and anything that... Has enough content. We also have a research team at headquarters that helps the team do the work, composed of historian, people specialized in geography, sociology, any type of science that is not video game science. And these people, they dig on the topic. They also find the exact experts. To give you an example, when we did an Assassin's Creed about the American Revolution the team managed to find an expert about the weapons of the American Revolution. They also managed to find a group of fans, people who are studying the period so much and then they reproduce the combats with costumes. And these people are very knowledgeable on the subject, sometimes even more than academics. If you wanted something about also that's going to involve, for example, um, indigenous uh, people like uh, native uh, Indians, you know, in, in Canada or in America. We also talk to these communities to make sure that we reproduce their community right. And not just what we see in the media or anything like that. We go in the field. We organize trips for our production team, for our development team. They go and spend time. If we do a game, the division in New York. The team's going to spend time in New York, but not to do the touristic tour. They're going to go under the tunnels in in Central Park and they're going to talk to the police and to the prostitutes and even to the drug dealers to understand what is the city all about, to get a feel, to get the sounds, the the smells. And even if you can't transmit the smell today in a video game, there's an ambience they can transmit. And it's important that the people who do the game actually live the experience. And in the end, we have people who do a an Assassin's Creed about Greece. The people who work on the game, they have like a degree in Greek <laughs> stu- studies. They're so good.
1: <laughs> yeah, and also the other way around. I think I don't think there's a lot of people that start studying history and with their history degree expected to go and work for the game company to you know figure out all the details of a Renaissance game. I mean, th- why this incredible focus on the details? Why is it so important to get it right? Uh,
3: two reasons. Uh, one is that um, we want to make games that are very rich uh, and very immersive. And when you look at reality, sometimes it's it's more rich, more diverse than anything you can imagine. Mm. Um, so why not use that? Those beautiful stories and characters. Like who would have imagined what happened during history? Like a a book couldn't imagine. And you can you can read a book about science fiction. You can watch a film about science fiction. There's never going to be as many details as the real in the real history. So that's one thing. Mm. The other thing is um, at Ubisoft. I think it's it's prof- it's very profound. It's like in our DNA. Our mission is actually to enrich players' life through memorable um, entertainment uh, experiences. And this enrich players' life. It's enriched through game because gaming. We know that even. Uh, animals learn by playing, so gaming is part of the learning process, so that's one thing. When you play um, any type of game, when you play you can fail, and by failing you learn, and in video games you can even fail in front of your friends. There are not many places in the world where you accept to fail in front of your games, in front of your friends, but in gaming you can do that. So you improve by trying. You also socialize a lot. And we saw it during the lockdown where even the World Health Organization launched a campaign called Play Apart Together where they told people, well, go and play video games because this way you're going to socialize. And the video games publisher gave games for free for people to play. That was... Uh, for, for some people, it saved their, their lives uh, just because people were so isolated, yeah. and even within families, sometimes people weren't talking, but suddenly they were all in the living room playing a game together. Um, and you can also learn content, actual content inside the game, like the games that are history-based, the tra- strategy games, etc., uh, and you also gain self-confidence that that whole thing of trying again and again and th- the fact that it's okay to try again and again gives you also confidence be- with all the rewards that you get little by little. So there are plenty of aspects within games by themselves and on top of that Ubisoft wants to add content. Yeah.
1: So but 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 so the the reason for this this the, the, being so focused on all those historical details is on one hand there's a creative reason because you know truth is stranger than fiction there's so much detail out there that you could never dream up so it's it's an inspiration for the creators and on the other hand it adds to the gameplay by making things difficult harder to understand learning things and and how I know because in the end Assassin's Creed of course is a, a battle game you know I know that you've also expanded that world to an educational audience, right? For the people that don't want to play the game, they could also go in and...
3: Could you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So almost from the start of Assassin's Creed, we had history teachers who were using our game, which is a mature-rated game. So it's not supposed to be shown in class or to anyone under 18 because there is combat involved. But because the representation of the Italian Renaissance or of the golden age of piracy or of the American Revolution who are so good in our game and, and, and very close to reality. They were using, they were capturing videos inside the games to show to their students in the class, in, in high school or in, even in primary school somewhere, sometimes. So they, re, they were all talking to say, like, hey, can you do a version of the game that does not have combat and where there's no pressure of time? where you can just wander in the world and learn about that world in that period of time without it being really a game. and We decided to go for it. And that's how we created the Discovery Tour. The Mm. first period that we did is Egypt, so after the release of Assassin's Creed Origin, that's about um, Egypt in the Ptolemaic era, so that's uh, just before our era, like a hundred before Christ, Um, we decided to develop a educational version of Assassin's Creed where we are using this beautiful world that we have. There's no combats, there's no pressure of time. And we also improved that world with elements from the real worlds, like real um, uh, uh, objects from museums, from the Louvre or other museums, uh, from Egyptian collections. We scanned them, we photographed them, and we added them in the game with lots of information, educational information. And we work with historians and teachers to create guided tours inside the world. So for example, if you want to learn about the mummification process, you don't just hear about it, read about it, but you actually walk in, in, those work, in, in those places where they were actually doing it. So you see people doing it, doing the mummification, talking to each other, the little different people and tools, techniques involved in the process. So you learn much more. And also because you're interacting, then you become an actor and you learn more by doing as well
1: now before we k- move to those two projects that we really want to have a look at as well um i know that this this look into history you've done this on at, at different levels i remember uh, a vr vr installation where you could actually enter buildings that had already been destroyed in syria so really going back to something that has been lost and if i understand correctly you're still working on this big project with uh, universities to recreate some historical uh, cities in Europe as well, right? Just to...
3: Yeah, there is um, there's the project Time Machine that's led by EPFL, uh, Polytechnique uh, Lausanne, Ecole uh, Polytechnique Fédérale de Lausanne in Switzerland. Uh, so in the Digital Humanities Department, they launched a huge project about digitizing uh, Europe. Basically, yeah, everything. Uh, huh? It's a very
1: big project. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um,
3: and and make that available to everyone, so they have uh, antennas, kind of like in in all countries and all the cities that are interested. Uh, including in the Netherlands, in France, in Germany, everywhere. And um, so the idea is to work together. Uh, So most of the partners of this project are actually universities and researchers, historians, and there are very few private companies like Ubisoft or Ecodem, who's doing the photogrammetry, for example, for the sites that are in danger. And it's great for us because we're also confronted to the historians um, and to their work. And in our... In our role as a video game company, we're entertainers. So we use history as a base, as an inspiration, but we're kind of free to tweak history. It's okay because we're entertainers the same way they do in movies. You know, when you do a historical movie, it's not always a documentary. A documentary has to be accurate. A movie can tell a different story, even if it has the iconic characters or the iconic monuments. The same thing in games. Think about a painter. Okay, you can have exactly the same photography of a place and the same painting. The photography is going to be more accurate, but the painting is not going to be as accurate. The painting is going to transmit something else. It's going to transmit a different emotion. It's going to tra- it can decide to, trans- to, to give you an emotion of drama, for example, and you have an impression there's a story there that maybe you don't have in the picture. It's the same thing with games. Yeah. We use history at the beginning. But we can also decide to tell a bit of a different story based on that history.
1: Now, there was a moment in recent history, which it it doesn't happen very often, but sometimes there's a moment that everybody in the whole wild world is realizing something's happening here. My son was on a school trip to Paris and his whole class, of course, was you know, beaming over all the social webs, what was happening there, which was the Notre Dame was on fire. The Notre Dame was on fire. It's a huge event. Um, now, Ubisoft said, let's make a game. <laughs> Tell us about that game.
3: Because it's, a, it's super interesting what you've done there. Go ahead. So actually, um, <laughs> when um, when Notre Dame uh, burning, was burning, uh, people all over the world started sharing memories of Notre-Dame. So, posting photos, videos of their visit of Notre-Dame. And the gamers among them, they posted videos of gameplay. like They played the game Assassin's Creed Unity, that had released five years earlier, a game about the French Revolution, where uh, we had a beautiful representation of Notre-Dame. So they played the game because that was their memory of Notre-Dame, their own memory. and the emotion that they felt when Notre Dame was, was burning was so strong that they remember that strong emotion, more positive, I hope, that strong emotion that they lived while playing the game. And all over the world, they shared it on the Internet, even like all the TVs and the, the news um, also posted those videos and they even said ubisoft's going to help for the reconstruction because they have a 3D model. Well, not exactly because our model is only 90% exact, so you can't use it for reconstruction. And thankfully there are scans that are much better. So Ubisoft gave money for the reconstruction. We also made the game Assassin's Creed available for free for people to play with it and own it. And then Assassin's Creed is a game for people over 18 and people who want to play games and, and action-adventure games. And I was like, too bad, not everybody can can see this model. It's mm-hmm. beautiful, it's very close to reality, we can do something very emotional, like that. visit can be very emotional until people can go and visit Notre-Dame again. We should do something that's for everyone. And I asked my team to pull out the 3D model from our game and to um, turn that into a virtual reality experience where you can put on a VR headset and actually walk in Notre Dame. Mm. So just a couple of months after the fire, we had a five-minute experience where you have ten different points of view. You are inside Notre Dame. You in your living room. You can define a zone of three meter by three, and you actually walk just as if you were there. And inside, outside, you're teleported automatically to each scene. Uh, outside and you even have a tour in a balloon above Notre-Dame. And that's also in a Paris that's a lively Paris. It's not just Notre-Dame itself, but it's within Paris. So it's is a incredible it, is, it, is it
1: today's Paris or is it Paris, the historic Paris? It's
3: actually the Paris from Assassin's Creed Unity. Okay. <laughs> so it's the Paris of the French Revolution. And right. one thing that's important, you know, I told you about taking liberties um, yeah. uh, compared to history. When we decided to do the game Assassin's Creed Unity, it's on the French Revolution. But we decided to represent the Notre-Dame of Viollet-le-Duc that was built 70 years after the French Revolution.
0: Okay, Okay,
3: yeah. Because during the French Revolution, there was no spire (laughs) in Notre-Dame. There was no gargoyles. Yeah. It was a a Notre-Dame from the Middle Ages. And we did that because we wanted Notre-Dame to be recognizable worldwide, Mm -hmm. and also because the assassins... Needs to climb everywhere, so it needs to be really high, and that's okay because we are entertainers. So we have the Notre Dame, the contemporary Notre Dame inside the Paris of the of the French Revolution, yes. and and it's it's beautiful and it's a very emotional visit. And even in terms of music, we license the music recorded on the very organ of Notre Dame six months before the fire.
1: Yeah, and and it, at the moment, that's the only way to visit Notre Dame. But right now you you move this this idea of going around in the Notre Dame into a a sort of escape game, right? It's coming out soon, I think in two months or something, um, where you have an hour to save the Notre Dame.
3: (laughs) Exactly. So it's actually because, well, Ubisoft already has escapes games in virtual reality, so we already have three: one in Assassin's Creed in Greece, one Assassin's Creed in Egypt, and one Prince of Persia. So these are based on our brands. It's a beautiful adventure, one-hour, location-based. So you go places. You you can go with friends, family, up to four people. You pay ticket, you do it. Your experience just as if you're doing any other escape game, except you're wearing a VR headset, which means that you can do things that you can't do in reality you can launch strong objects you can climb you can do plenty of things and you solve all those puzzles which is the essence of an escape game and actually last year Jean-Jacques Hano the filmmaker came to see us and said well next year I'm releasing a movie about the fire of Notre Dame it's not a documentary it's a movie but it's going to be very close to reality it's going to be it has so much so many details about what really happened and when I'm telling you that uh, reality is sometimes richer than anything you can invent, for example, the four, among the four people that were the first one on the fire of Notre Dame, there were two girls and two boys, and most of them had never seen the fire. It was their first time seeing a fire. And when he told us the story, he said, even if I had written the story, I would never have put two girls, like two beautiful young girls who had never seen a fire. People would have accused me of like pretending equality. But actually, their history was yeah, here. So so that's just one example. And there were so many um, events during that fire that people don't even know about. So the film is going to tell all that story. And he said, "What well, does Ubisoft want to do a game? And I was like... Yes, we would love to, but one year is way too short to do a game. You know, to do a big game today, we need three to four years. About uh, It can go up to 1,000 people, it can cost a hundred million. And in one year, we can't do a proper game. We can do something it's not going to be great. So we're not going to be proud of it. So we don't do anything that we're, yeah. <laughs> we're not going to be proud of. Said, so, but I have another idea. We have those three escape games. We have a network already about 600 escape rooms worldwide in Europe. America, in Australia, in China, that are operating or escape games. Um, we can add another one. We can do an escape game in Notre Dame. We already have the 3D model, so we don't need to create that. So we already had the time. We need to concentrate on adding the elements we don't have. We didn't have some parts of it and the, the beffroi. I don't know the English for the beffroi or the hotel, but all those elements mm-hmm. that were important in the fire but that we didn't have in the original model. And we can invent a game where you have to save the relics and fight the fire before it's too late. And remember when we were all watching Notre Dame and and we were praying, even the people who were not religious were praying that the, the firemen go fast enough to save Notre Dame before it was completely destroyed. Well, here you have that same feeling in a game with two players or four players and, and you work in teams to really help each other to, to solve those puzzles and save the relics and, and fight the, the fire before it's too late. And uh, the film is going to release in March and our, our game is going to release the, just a few weeks after that, probably.
1: Oh, very much looking forward to that. There's another project, Lady Sapiens, that <laughs> you are very um, you know committed to and have worked very hard on. Tell us what it is, because it's a, a combination of different platforms, different media, which I think is very interesting to hear how many different worlds you can create. What is Lady Sapiens?
3: <laughs> so Lady Sapiens, this is a project that, um, it's a uh, documentary producer, French documentary, documentary producer, who had already done documentaries about uh, Neanderthal, uh, prehistorical uh, uh, Neanderthal. So, and they were wondering about what to do next, and they said, okay, we'll do something about Sapiens, but what can we do that no one has done before? And that was the time where we're, we were talking a lot about that was also Me Too and, and all the thing about equality men-women and how sometimes historians forgot about the role of women during history and so, well, there was never a documentary about the prehistorical woman. Is there anything interesting to say? And they digged a little bit and they found out that recent research shows that the woman had a very big role during prehistory, that actually men and women were equal, the society was not organized by genre but more by capacity, and actually the grandmothers were usually looking at the kids so that the mother could go out and find food, and the the, the women were actually bringing about 70% of the resources. They were not staying at home sweeping the cave or anything like that. So they had materials, they presented it to France Television, the biggest uh, TV channel in France, and they loved the idea, they said, yes, go for it, we'll put it on the biggest science slot on TV. But how are you going sh- like, to illustrate the scientific purpose? Because if you only show people wearing a blouse and microscopes and and some trees and some stones and, and bones, it's not going to be very exciting, you know, for prime time TV one of the co of the documentary was actually a consultant for Ubisoft on one of our games. Not an Assassin's Creed game, a Far Cry game. Yeah. So Far Cry is also an action-adventure game that is probably even more gamer uh, than, than Assassin's Creed. That is also for people above uh, 18. And in one of the episodes, the action took place during prehistory. So we did that job of working with historians and... and and, and experts of all kinds to reproduce history, to make sure the trees were right and the, the animals were right and, uh, and even that uh, uh, what people were wearing at that time uh, was right. Instead, I know someone who has a good representation of prehistory and a living representation of prehistory. So that's how they contacted us and we agreed to let them use our images inside the documentary and in our, our games, we now have a camera that works. It's a debug camera. It's not for the general public. It's for for the developers. A camera that we can move inside our world, a world a little bit like a drone. So we're using our world, just legisl- like three so D world, and we can pilot the camera just as we would do in a real world, yeah. and the. the the actually the center of the documentary the first thing he did is buy a playstation and play (laughs) far cry to know about the game the same way he would do about knowing about any landscape yeah and uh, then he sat with a technician from ubisoft they did all the captures in game to illustrate the the scientific purpose and in the end On a 90-minute documentary, you have 17 minutes of Far Cry Primal. It's huge. It's the first time that a game is is illustrating a scientific documentary. And it was actually broadcasted in France at the end of September. It reached 1.4 million just on the very first broadcast. And then you have replay and everything. Mm -hmm. And this is double what they usually do on that science slot. So this is huge. It's a co-production with Canada. There's also uh, NHK in Japan, so it's a worldwide documentary. And then we said, this documentary is very immersive, it's great, but can we go further in immersion? And the best tool for immersion today is VR. So we decided to develop a virtual reality experience that puts you in the very shoes of Lady Sapiens. So now we have a 12-minute virtual reality experience where you are Lady Sapiens, the woman of free history and you're, you carve your weapons, you, um, you draw on the cave, you know? everybody dreamt of leaving their mark on a cave, <laughs> um, and, and then you go after the the mammoth and everything. And this experience, uh, we, used, we reused assets from our game, so we exported trees, animals, any assets from the game Far Cry to gain some time to go really faster and we were able to do that with a very small team actually to develop this and then you can see the experience for example at the uh, uh, French uh, Natural History Museum which is a very big institution, a very scientific institution, so it's it's there, uh, it's available there, it's also available in the southwest of France in a Paleolithic uh, site. In a and cave, yeah. <laughs> when, yeah. And when they saw when they saw what we had with animals, they said, Hey, we're interested in a documentary about animals. Can, can you do something? Like, can you do a short film, 12-minute film about animals? So the scenarist wrote the story, Pierrette, who goes to find some medical plant to cure her son. And along the way, uh, she meets animals. And every time she meets an animal, there's a zoom on the animal with scientific information. And this was actually done completely during lockdown, the first lockdown where it was impossible to to shoot any movie. Like, people yeah. were locked at home.
1: The virtual and worlds were the only worlds we had, right? You know. Exactly. Yeah.
3: And we end up having a 12-minute CGI movie that no museum could pay. Like, high-quality CGI costs a fortune, but yeah. the museum can afford it here because it's only capture and then creating the... the the short movie of 12 minutes was that story, but they didn't have to create any image. So yeah. it's very efficient, it's very sustainable also. Um, and, and it's great also because to, when you look at it, it comes from a mature-rated game and it ends up being an educational film. And even the documentary that I mentioned, the, the full-length documentary, was also recut in short capsules for kids. So on the website of France TV Lumni, that is for kids, the educational, part of the French Revolution. Um, They have seven capsules with images from the same documentary, real images and images from the game, with a commentary that is adapted for kids. So here you have an educational tool coming from video game. I love that.
1: Yeah, but I also love the fact that, you know, once you've built this game in so much detail that as you say, the camera can move around in it, you can make different adventures in it. It becomes a, you know, it becomes a permanent world in a way that can be used over different channels. I mean, if we look at the future and, you know, this is a strange year in the sense that suddenly everybody's talking about the metaverse and everything is new, and mm. which of course is something in essence you've worked on for 20 years already, you know, these this permanent worlds. What, what do you feel is going to happen there? I mean, how do you view this? you know, this new excitement over what is possible once you have a spatially oriented 3D permanent world because that's what you
3: make. Well, actually, if you look at it, um, people outside the video games industry tend to talk about the metaverse much more than within the (laughs) video games industry, just because for us it's just normal, it's what we've done. And for example, having a world that lives its life, even if I am not connected, Well, that has happened for like it existed for more than 20 years. That's okay. We know how it works. Having an avatar, we know how it works. Having a digital economy, we know how it works. Now, there are some things that are new, for example, the NFTs are great because for us, it's going to be a way to validate the the digital economy it's going to yeah. be a great tool also to reward players players for the time they spend players for their creations also mm-hmm. uh people are crafting things in game and instead of just keeping that value inside the game maybe can go also out outside um, of the game so it's important that in that metaverse um, People that it's interesting to the people that people are rewarded for what they do. Yeah, uh, it yeah. must not be just a buzzword. That's one thing. Now, um, I have no crystal ball. I have no idea what the metaverse is going to be, and I guess no one. No one does. Uh, but. Uh, knows. <laughs> so it's a buzzword, okay? But now look at what how the world has turned. Um, for example, for two years we've spent so much time in front of our screen working. So. I'm working on Zoom, I'm working on Teams, I would have no problem working in a minute. Meta- I mean, it's the same thing or even maybe it's better because when I'm in front of my screen and I'm, I'm talking to someone, I never look at them in the eye just because the webcam is right never in the right place. If you're going to do that in VR, for example, then you, in VR, you can actually look at people in the eye. Even if it's an avatar, you're looking, you have an impression that you're looking at them in the eye. So that's yeah. one thing. So in terms of communications, it m- might actually be more natural than what we have today. Yeah. Or other things that we do in real life. For example, if I have to fix my phone, I'm uh, I'm outside on the street, uh, I enter an Apple store and I talk to someone, a real person, who tells me, um, okay, so you have to call up Genius or whatever, here's the number, so you go home you and you pick up your phone and you talk to the person. Okay, so I'm not seeing the person for real, I'm just talking to them over the phone. I could do that in the metaverse, like I could be in that metaverse, enter a store and actually talk to someone who has an avatar who's going to solve my problem and maybe that that's going to be even more efficient than picking up my phone. So there are plenty of things that are going to be done much better than today. It, maybe it doesn't mean that we're going to spend more time online. It's just that we're going to spend better time online.
0: Okay.
1: Well, thank you very much. All right. Maybe not more time, but better time. And I'm, I also love that Ubisoft is putting uh, these stories and history and these experiences in this new world that we're entering. So thank you very much.
3: You're welcome.
1: Okay, we're not done yet because there are five questions.
0: So imagine this, it is the near future. We have an acute crisis on planet Earth, but lucky you, you are one of the chosen ones to be able to fly away to the planet next one There, together with all these great pioneers, we want to establish a new base, a new home for humanity. But before you can board the Space Shuttle, you have to answer five questions. Here's question one. Name one luxury object you want to take to your new home. Hmm.
3: Um, I guess I would take a purse. It does not need to be an expensive purse but I need a purse, not just a bag, a purse of my own, to put the most <laughs> precious things.
0: Now I have to ask what would be in that purse, obviously, <laughs> but women don't, I, I, women don't answer have this no question. I idea, yeah, yeah, don't ask, don't ask. <laughs> so which book should everyone read before boarding the Space Shuttle?
3: Um, I would vote for The Little Prince uh, by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Because it's not just a story for kids. Uh, it tells many. It has many lessons for life involved. Like for example, the importance of reconnecting with your childhood and the, the creativity of your childhood. Uh, the fact that you don't have to take yourself too seriously and do not be too serious as well. Um, remember to to take time for yourself, for your friends, for your family. Like don't. Don't think that work is the most important. Don't be taken away uh, by work. Um, Also have the courage to to explore, to take risks and to get out of your comfort zone. Um, And also um, the importance of choosing with your heart and having knowledge is more important. And, And actually, the more knowledge you have, the better you are at using your intuition. So root your choice in your knowledge, but, but choose with your heart. And, and I think we forget about those lessons when we read the book because we only, uh, we only think about the story for kids, and it's much more than that.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of in that book, definitely. And if we find a rose on the new planet, we also know how to behave with her. Mm-hmm. Um, name one exceptional person you would uh, take to the new planet.
3: Um, I think I would bring uh, s- someone like uh, Leonardo da Vinci, because he was at the same time a scientist and engineer, but also a painter, sculptor, an ar- architect and a philosopher. So he had like, not all of the knowledge uh, of that period, but he was interested in so many things. And also he dreamt big. He, he dreamt of things that didn't exist and that's what we need, I think, if you want to continue to evolve in society.
0: Absolutely. Creativity and curiosity that mixes definitely is something we need to explore this new planet. Create one lore that bans something from next one forever.
3: Um, for me, the things that is the most terrible uh, is torture, any kind of torture. So willingfully hurt someone um, and sometimes just for nothing and something to make them say or do something. And, uh, so the most terrible for
0: me is torture. Great choice. And if you could please name one tradition from planet Earth that you would take to the new home, what would that be?
3: I think I would take uh, celebrating Because it's not useful per se, like you're not creating anything, you're not selling anything, you don't make money out of it or anything like that. But celebrating it, what engages people to do more.
0: I'd love to celebrate with you on the next planet. So you're allowed to board the space (laughs) shuttle with us. Thank you so much for your time and playing this little (laughs) game with us. And I hope we see us in person at some point again in Hamburg. Oh, yes. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for the fascinating conversation today. And also thank you for watching. If you want to learn more about the next conference, the book that's coming up, the insights on our blog, or watch more videos, please visit nextconf.au. Finally, I'd like to thank our partners, Accenture Interactive, Factor 3, and T3N for their support. Hope to see you next time. Bye.